We've been walking through uh, this series called Jesus Stories, and we've been looking at some very familiar passages uh, that we learned as children. My hope has been that we've, uh, God has allowed us to see them in, in, in a different light. You know, the first week we looked at Peter walking on water, and so often that story is about Peter's faith. And that story has nothing really to do with Peter. It has everything with Jesus and Jesus calling people to himself, and we looked at that. And then the, the week after that, we looked at uh, Jesus healing the man with the demon. And again, it's not about the man with the demon. It's about Jesus and the power that Jesus has over people and that Jesus has over demons. And then we looked at Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter. And again, Jesus' power and how Jesus had love for these two people. And he took time and he took uh, effort out of his own day to bring healing. And then last week, we looked at Jesus uh, with the feeding of the 5,000. We talked last week about that story isn't about the 5,000, but it was about the compassion that Jesus had towards the, the lost people, the, the sheep without a shepherd, is what Jesus said. And it was the compassion that drove him to feed them. And the challenge for us is, where's our compassion for people? Do we see people the way Jesus saw people, helpless and harassed and sheep without a shepherd? This morning, we're going to finish our Jesus stories with another very familiar passage. It's in Mark chapter 10. It's the, 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 the story is about the young, rich ruler. We know that this comes out of Matthew and it comes out of Luke. And we take the Matthew account, the Luke account, we take this account, and that's how we come up with the young, rich ruler. And so Matthew records him one way, and Luke records him in one way, and Mark records him in one way, and each of them talk a little bit different about this young man, this young rich ruler. And so this morning we're going to look at what does Jesus call us to? And how does Jesus call us to get there? The, the, the answer is simple. He calls us to follow him. That's what he's going to do with this young man. And so often we look at this young man and we look at what this young man didn't do, but we miss the, the beautiful text about what happens and what Jesus calls this young man to. And so we've looked at, at least for me, when I've studied the passage, been taught the passage, we look at what the young man rejects. But we're going to see that it's not just about what this young man rejects, but it's about who Jesus is again. So let's look in the text. And we'll start in verse 17. And as I've done throughout this series, I'll teach some, I'll read some and then teach some and get us to the end and call us to a, a challenge, if you will. And then next week, we'll start with our Advent series. We'll study uh, four weeks in Advent. We'll come back Christmas Eve night for the celebration of Christ's ultimate coming. So we'll celebrate together uh, in a candlelight service on the 24th. So we'll end today in the Jesus stories. We'll start next week. With Advent, as we know, the word Advent means the anticipation or the arrival of. And so we're going to come over the next four weeks with this anticipation of Christ coming to us. Um, but this morning we'll end here in Luke, or in, excuse me, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says this. Remember where we've come out of the text, all these things that Jesus is going. And it says this. This is so important, these first few words. In the text, it says, and he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey. Just highlight the word journey in your Bible, because you'll see in chapter 11, you'll see in chapter 12, 
where's Jesus going? What's the journey that Jesus is on? Jesus is on his journey. He's beginning his ascent to Jerusalem to be killed. So this is the, the very last thing that we see that Je- one of the last things that we see that Jesus does on earth before his uh, death and resurrection. It's an important part of the text. It's an important story of Jesus that he's going to Jerusalem to ultimately die for us and to save the world. And so it says he set out on his journey, his journey to Jerusalem to be killed. And it says this, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him this question. So here we see this man, this young rich ruler, come and he runs to Jesus. Highlight that word in your Bible. People back in the day, men especially, did not run, period. If you remember from Luke chapter 15, it says that the, 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 the father ran towards the prodigal son. Men in that culture did not run. It was, it was known to be undignified. Because you'd have to pull up your... your um, uh, I say it's a skirt, dress, uh, their, their robe. They'd have to pull it up. They'd have to expose their legs to people. And that was just not, that, that you just did not do that in that culture. And so here's this man that runs, that says to himself, I need to get to Jesus, and I need to get to him quickly, and I'm going to be undignified in how I get to Jesus. And then it says he knelt before Jesus. That's a posture of worship. That here this man, undignified, runs to Jesus and falls out before Jesus, and then says this to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think all of us will ask that question sometime in in our lifetime. What must we do to inherit eternal life? You see, this young man missed the point. We'll see it here in the text. Jesus is going to address that idea that there's something that he can do to gain eternal life. So this man runs to Jesus. There's something in him that says, hey, I don't have eternal life. I want eternal life. So I'm going to come to Jesus and ask Jesus for eternal life. Because I don't have something that this man has to offer me. So what do I need to do, Jesus, to get this thing that you've been talking about for the last three years, eternal life? What must I do? to have eternal life. Now the whole passage hinges on Jesus' answer. The whole rest of the passage, if you want to, uh, just mark this in your Bible, the rest of the passage hinges on Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Like he didn't even address the idea that there's this thing called eternal life. He addresses the idea, why do you call me good? Your concept of good is off is what Jesus is saying to the young man. You see, the rest of the passage, we're going to get there. It's going to have everything to do with verse 27. This verse is going to be deeply connected to verse 27. I'll I'll, I'll give away the punchline already. So why do you call me good? No one is good except God. I was talking to Jared this week and was reminded of this story in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, anyone read the Chronicles of Narnia, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis does an amazing job of retelling uh, the story of Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, there's this, there's this chapter, chapter 8, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the, very, the first book, not the first book writ- written, but not the first book in order, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And they're having this discussion. Uh, the, the little beavers are having this discussion 
with, with Lucy and Peter and Edmund. They're at the dinner table. They're talking about what's going on in Narnia. And if you know about the book of Narnia, there's this white witch, and the white witch is the symbol of Satan and how Satan has come, and she, the white witch, has given reign over all the world, all of Narnia. And the white witch is beginning to turn. It says that the people would go into the white witch's throne room and they'd be turned into stone. And so they're having this conversation with the beavers at the dinner table, and they're talking about this idea of, hey, can't we do something to help uh, Mr. Timmis? That's one of the people that had been turned into a stone. Can we do something to help them? What can we do? Sound familiar? What the young rich rule? What can we do to help this man? And the beavers, uh, Mr. Beaver and Miss Beaver said, there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that you can do. You can't go disguise yourself and go into the throne room and grab them out of there and save them. There's nothing you can do, but there's something that can do something for him. His name is Aslan. And we all know Aslan's the, the lion and the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. And so now, here's the first time the, the children are introduced to this lion. And so they have this conversation, and Mr. Uh, Mr. Beaver begins with this old hymn, this old rhyme, and he says it this way. Wrong will be right when Adam comes in sight. At the sound of the roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall all have spring again. And then he says this. You'll understand when you see him. The beaver's talking to uh, Susan. And he said, when you see him, you'll understand. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'll lead you where you shall meet him, says Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you that the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea, don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslam is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he is a man. Is he quite safe? Shall I feel rather nervous about meeting this lion? Oh, that you will, dearie. And no mistake, says Miss, Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslam without their knees knocking, there's neither a, a braver or more or just plain silly. Then isn't he safe? Says Lucy. Safe, Mr. Beaver? Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Oh, I long to see him, says Peter. You see, God is not a safe God. If you have in your mind that God is a safe God, then you're going to miss the rest of this passage. But what Jesus says to him, and he answers him, oh, he's not safe, young rich ruler, but he is good. He's good. And why do you call me good if you think that you're good and I'm good? He's saying to him, hey, God is the only one that's really good. You compare yourselves to all these other people, but the only one that's truly good and truly perfect and truly just is God. He is good. Like, don't miss this in the passage. We have a good God. That's what Jesus says to him. You have a good God. And now Jesus is going to call him to something that isn't safe. He's going to call him to something that's good. And so what does he say to the young rich ruler? 
He said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And so what he's saying, Jesus says the last five commandments plus one of them. And I believe, the text doesn't say it, but it kind of shows it, that the man cuts Jesus off and said, I've done all those. All those things you just said, Jesus, I've done all those things. I've done all those. I've honored my father and mother. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done these things. But he doesn't allow Jesus to get to the first five commandments. He said, all the things relationally here on earth, I've done all those. But let's not talk about those first five. Because the first five have everything to do with our relationship with God. And he's, God, through Jesus, is going to point that out to the young rich ruler. Right? So the man can say, I've done all those things that you're talking about. I've done everything. Well, he must not have heard the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount exposes that we haven't done any of those things. And then Jesus says, this, the, boy, the man says this. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him. And look how he looked at him. He loved him. It's the only place in Mark's gospel that it talks about Jesus loving someone that way. It talks about Jesus having compassion. It talks about Jesus' patience. It talks a lot of places. But the first time in all the gospel of Mark does it say that Jesus loved someone. I think Jesus was loving him because he knew in and of that young man's self, that young man could do nothing to inherit the kingdom of God. And so he looked at him intently, and he loved him. He cared for him. He had compassion for him. He had empathy, he had sympathy for this young man. He looked at him and loved him and said this, but you lack one thing. All those things you just said you've done, and yet you still lack one thing to have eternal life. What does it say? The one thing you lack. He says this. He calls them the five things in this text. He says, the one thing you lack. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. You you see, what Jesus is saying there is, hey, I'm good and now I'm going to call you to something that's not very safe. Because if you want safety, don't follow Jesus. Jesus is not about your safety. Is he? You, can you see anywhere in the text before this story, all of the Old Testament, you see anything about the safety that God calls us to? No. Because God knows if we get safe within ourselves, then we get less dependent on him. He knows if you feel safe with something, then you'll feel security in something, then you'll trust in that something more than you'll trust in him. Amen? And so God's never going to call you and I to safety and to security because that's not who he is in his character. He's good in his character, but he's not safe in his character. So he says, go. The first thing he says, hey, you need to leave here and you need to go. And then he says, what? When you go from here, I want you to sell everything you have. All the places in your life that you feel safe and secure, I want you to let those things go. Sell all of it. 
Now, this is not calling us. This is calling, I'm not saying that, God's not saying that to us. Like you and I need to go and leave and sell everything we had. He's speaking to the heart of this man. But I believe this passage says to us, is there a willingness for us to go and sell? Do you and I have a willingness to leave this place and sell all that we have if those things that you're holding on to are keeping you from eternal life? Because they're called idols, and idols keep us from eternal life. Jesus says this through John in 1 John. He says, have no idols before you. Take all your idols and get rid of them, is what John says in his gospel in 1 John. And he says, go sell all that you have, And once you sell all that you have, you're going to gain money for all that you have. He says, now take that money and give that money away. So not only sell what you have, but now take the money that you have and what? Give it to the poor. Give it away. And then, he says, you can come and follow me. So you go, you sell, you give, then you can come and follow me. Not until then. Not until you're willing to the young man to give all that you have away. Can you ever follow me? And I wonder for me, just for me, and maybe you wonder this too. Is there anything in my life that I'm not willing to go, sell, and give so that I can really follow Jesus? That was the question as I was pondering this week, this text. God, is there anything in my life, anything I'm not willing to give away, so I can really follow you. My kids, my wife, my, my security and my jobs. And I was sitting there studying, and God just began to flood my mind with things that, man, there's sometimes I, I, I hold on to them pretty loosely, but really I'm still holding on to them. Like I, I can hold things, you know, I, if I had a, a, a ball here, I could hold on to a ball pretty tightly. But when I really say, I'm not really holding on to it, I let it go, and it can kind of wobble in my hand a little bit, you know what I mean? But if I take my hand and I turn it upside down, the the ball's not going to fall out. That's not the life God's calling me to. God is calling me to live open-handed with all that I have and all that he's given to me, not somewhat open-handed. I just began to ponder, God, is there anything in my life that I'm holding on to? That's holding me back. And I, I wonder for us, Palace Chapel, is there anything for us that we're holding on to? And then what does it say in verse 22? Disheartened by the saying, the young roots ruler went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Like here's the opportunity. You ran to Jesus. You asked Jesus for eternal life. Jesus tells you how to get eternal life. And he leaves disheartened. He leaves sorrowful because he had all this stuff, all this security. You see what ha- he's going to tell us here in a moment, what wealth does to us. You see, if we're wealthy people, and we are here in America, whether we like it or not, we're the wealthiest people in the world. I believe three things that wealth does for us. Three things that John MacArthur says that wealth does for us. It gives us a a false sense of security. And wealth could be anything, not just money, not just financially, but anything, all the blessing that God has given to us can become security for us. The first one, it gives us a false sense of security. The second one is it 
it consumes us with the world. We get consumed by the world with all that we have. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, don't, don't be lovers of the world. Don't love the things of the world. I believe wealth does that. We become lovers of the world. And the last one is this. With wealth, we become very selfish. We hold on to things that we ought not to hold on to. We hold on to jobs that God may call us away from. We hold on to bank accounts that God may call us to let go of. God may call us to things, but because we're wealthy in all these things, we're selfish in all those things, and we say to ourselves, I'm the one that got all these things, so if I got all these things, I'm going to keep all these things. And so we become selfish, and our selfishness becomes idolatry, and idolatry is the thing that God hates the most out of everything. Amen? And so he went away disheartened. Let's turn over to Mark chapter 8, just one page. This is in essence what Jesus is calling this young man to. It's in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him deny his possessions, let him deny his wealth, let him deny all that he has, is what Jesus is saying. And what, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so Jesus is calling this man, he's calling us this morning, are we willing to lose something in order to gain something? Now remember, we're going to get back to God is good, because he is. And then in verse 23, it says Jesus looked around, or Jesus gazed upon those who are around him jesus intently looked is what the greek says he looked around and said to his disciples he said to the 12 gods who had really left everything to follow him if you remember that and he looked deeply into their hearts and he says this how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god and in that moment, it says this, his disciples were amazed at his words. What were they amazed for? Because in that culture, the, the, the wealth or the blessings that people would get, they would associate God was blessing them. And so all of a sudden, God is saying, hey, all those things that you have, all those blessings that you have, that's going to make it really difficult for you to inherit the kingdom of God. And they said, oh, my goodness. So is wealth the thing that, that is a blessing or is it now a curse? Because it changes the paradigm of what blessings and wealth are in their minds. Because that culture said, the more you have, the more you're blessed by God. That's where the prosperity gospel comes from, which is a wicked, wicked gospel. The prosperity gospel says, if, if you're blessed by God, then you'll have all you fill in the blank. Well, here Jesus talks completely against the prosperity gospel. It's not about wealth. It's not about wealth at all. We're going to see what it's about. How do we inherit the kingdom of God? It's not through our possessions. It's not even through keeping the commandments, is what Jesus is going to tell them here in a moment. But just Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's difficult. And then he says this, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, a lot of people have taught this passage that the, the needle and the camel, the, the, the needle was the, the, the gate of the city. That's not the passage. That, the gate doesn't come to this part of the, uh, the world till 70 years later. So we know it's not about the gate. We know Jesus is literally talking. It's easier for a camel. The camel was the largest known animal in, in uh, the, the Palestine region. The, the old proverb was that it was easier for a, an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. The people there did not understand what an elephant was. They understood what a needle was. They understood what a camel was. And so he said, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. The eye of a needle means the eye of a needle, not the eye of the gate, the eye of a needle. Anyone ever seen the eye of a needle? Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? He's going to tell us here in a moment. And so Jesus is setting up the impossible. He's saying with you, with me, it's impossible for you, it's impossible for me to do anything with eternal value. Not that it's easy or difficult, it's impossible. He's saying it's impossible for you, for me, to inherit the kingdom of God. He's going to address what the young rich ruler said, what can I do? And Jesus says, hey, it's easier for the, the... the camel will go through an eye of a needle. And then the d- disciples looked at him. They were astonished and said to him, then how can you be saved? How can you have eternal life? Now remember, that verse I told you at the very beginning, verse 17 and 18 are attached to verse 27. And here's how it is attached. And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible. It's impossible for man to inherit the kingdom of God. It's impossible for man to do anything in his own power to come into the kingdom of God. Do you see that in the passage? It's impossible. There's nothing that you or I can do to inherit the kingdom of God. Do we understand that? There's nothing. That's what Jesus just says to the man. There's nothing that you can do. There's not enough law to keep. There's not enough things to give. There's not enough things to do. There's nothing. It's impossible with man to inherit the kingdom of God. And so then we ask the question, then how is it possible? If it's impossible for you and I to inherit the kingdom of God, then what? But not with God. Not with God. For all things are possible with God. You see, it's because of God's goodness, back in verse 17 and 18, that you and I get to enter the kingdom of God. It's because of what God, the character of God, not your character, not my character, not the things that I've done, not walking in the aisle, not praying a prayer, none of that gets me into the kingdom of God. But it's because of God's what? His goodness that gets me into the kingdom of God. It's because God and his sovereignty and his goodness and his choosing you and choosing me decided out of his goodness, his righteousness, his power to do for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. Amen? And so with God, all things are possible, even our eternal security, amen? And then Peter, being Peter, said this to him. See, we have left everything and followed you. Oh, Peter, come on, man. Can't you just stay in the moment, Peter? 
Like here Jesus is telling him, hey, with God, all things are possible. You can't do anything on your own merit to come into the kingdom of God. And then Peter says, well, what about me? Man, we've done, we've left everything, Jesus. So now what? Is what Peter says. And Jesus answers him in his compassion and says this. This truly I say to you. Because of God's goodness, remember this. This is because of God's goodness that this next part happens. It's not because you walked an aisle, not because you prayed a prayer, not because you decided anything, but it's because of God's goodness and God welcoming you into his family that the rest of this can happen. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake. And for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. Get that. Do you see that in the text? You're going to leave all this stuff. You're going to get all this stuff, but you're also going to get something you didn't leave. It's called persecution. You see that in the text? You're going to gain all this other stuff, but the one thing you're also going to gain is persecution. Why? Because persecution keeps us what? Dependent on God. If you've never experienced persecution, persecution for me is the one thing that drives me to my knees and to my face before the Lord and says, help me, help me, help me, help me. So God says, you'll leave all of that, you'll gain all that, but you're going to gain the one thing that's going to keep you dependent on me, what the man, uh, the good young ruler could not do, right? He wasn't dependent on God. He was dependent on himself. So God says, I'm going to give you all this, but I'm also going to give you persecution to keep you dependent on me. And at the end of the age comes eternal life. You're going to experience all this plus persecution, but then the great gift is what the man asked back in verse 17 and 18. I want eternal life. I want eternal life. And then Jesus says this, but many who are first will be last. The last I'll be first. What he's saying in that text is, hey, there's people on this planet that they look like they're first. Does it not? Like it blew my mind yesterday, blew my mind that a college coach is going to make $23 million in five years. That blew my mind. I thought to myself, why him and not me? Okay, I guess I'm the only one that's ever had that thought. Like, why that guy, not me? Am I the only one? But then I begin to go back to this text. Though he looks first on this earth, he will be dead last. If you've ever gone around the world to any poor people around the world, you leave America and you go anywhere around the world, man, they are the most joyous, happy, free people of the world. They are first. Because they experience what this passage says. They get it. They get it. That when they come into the kingdom of God, all the things that they have experienced. I just wondered for myself, I wondered for us, Powell's Chapel, what are we holding on to the way this young man held on to his possessions? What church do we hold on to? And because we're holding on to it loosely or tightly, we don't experience the goodness of God. 
You see, this passage has everything to do with the goodness of God, not with the young, rich ruler. And I wonder to myself, what in my life holds me back from the goodness of God and experiencing the goodness of God? And then church, for us, what holds us back from experiencing His goodness? I want to end with this quote this morning. It's from Jim Elliott. We saw him a few months ago. Jim Elliott was a, an amazing missionary that had a heart to see every man, woman, and child see and respond and hear to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's this place in, in Ecuador that uh, had a, a lost people group, a, a tribe that never heard the name of Jesus. And as you know, the story goes, Jim Elliott and a group of three other people decided to land in this remote place on the Amazon. And they had done all the work to prepare for their landing, all the work to get ready, to get out of the, the, the airplane and the aircraft and to present the gospel to this wicked, wicked tribe. And they got out. And moments after getting out, they were slain. They were killed for the gospel. And yet, months prior, Jim Elliott wrote this in his diary. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, we can keep all this stuff, all of our possessions, all the things we hold tightly and dearly to us. But if those are the things that hold us from eternal life, the promise is you will lose all of those things. They will all rot. They will all rust. They will all be eaten up with moths, and you may have millions and millions of dollars in your bank account, but when you're six feet under that millions and millions of dollars, does you no good. Amen? But are we willing to lose all that we have to gain what we cannot lose? Eternal security, eternal salvation. Because that's what God gives all of us because of His goodness. Let us pray. God, you are a good God. And like C.S. Lewis says in his book, you are not a safe God and you do not call your people to safety, but you do promise us your goodness. God, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And with you, all things are possible. We see that here in the text. And God, I pray now as we come to this last part of our service, that you, God, through your Holy Spirit would begin to bring conviction to each of us. And that you would convict us of the things we hold on to that hold us from experiencing your goodness. And maybe for some of us in this room that even ex that holds us back from experiencing eternal life. God, I pray that none of us would leave here like the young rich ruler, disheartened sorrowful but we leave here experiencing your goodness to each of us you are a good good God what is it that you're calling us to let go of to experiencing you deeply we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Amen